If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that, was, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we turn our hearts to your word and pray for wisdom, instruction, insight. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work amongst us, that you would allow us to see the wonderful things from the law of the Lord. May you, Holy Spirit, speak through your servant and may your people be blessed. And may we see that our king and your king has finally come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but Christmas is a dethroning of sort. A new sheriff is in town that will, will be a blessing to his people. 
who will conquer all of his and their enemies. And you see an allusion to this idea that there is an overthrowing, there is a dethroning that's happening with the coming of Jesus. And you see it in part because notice how the text begins. The text begins by calling Herod the king, Herod the king. And by the time the text ends, he's not called Herod the king. He's just called Herod. And I think Matthew is dropping a nugget here that his kingdom is being taken from him. But you also see it in the sense that by the end of this narrative, Herod is dead. He is dead. And the king that he tried to kill is alive. Whatever you might say about Christmas, whatever we might think Christmas is about, that what Matthew is trying to get us to see is that Christmas is ultimately about God Almighty finally dethroning fake imposter kings in the world and placing his son on the, king, on the throne forever. That Christmas is the arrival of this child, that we must never forget that this little baby born out of wedlock, born to a poor couple, that he's the true king of the story, that, 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 that the Magi, they get it right, that, that he's been given a star that's drawing all of them to this king. Christmas is a dethroning. What I want to do is sort of look at this under three headings. And the first thing I want us to think through is just our need for a king. Our need for a king. This idea of having a king, that it is so intertwined in Israel's history that think about this, that, that we have actually two books in the Old Testament that are named kings, right? First kings and second kings. And you can guess what it's about. Those two books are about kings that were in Israel and Judah who some ruled well and some did not. But it was about this kingdom that think about. We have two books, First Samuel and Second Samuel. And Samuel was a prophet who did what? He anointed the kings. Think about the major prophets like Isaiah in the year that Uzziah, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And so when you look at Isaiah's prophecy, his literature, that it's happening in the context of a king. A king is in office and he's ruling over the nation. Think about Jeremiah. When you look at Jeremiah's long book, it's happening under the, the guise of these kings who are ruling and that sometimes he's challenging them. Sometimes he's calling them out for walking in the way apart from the Lord. And so whatever you might say about the Old Testament or about the Bible, it really is about kings. It's about this, this idea that God's people need someone to rule over them. That's one reason why what's unique about Matthew's gospel is he talks about this over and over again. And I think we read it so much that we don't see it, but, but think about what he says, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? That blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys my commandments and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about what, what, what Jesus goes on to say, that do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink or wear. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. you. If you go back and look at Matthew, he's bringing up this kingdom and kingship terms all throughout his gospel. In other words, when Matthew looks at the coming of Jesus, he looks at Jesus as a coming king who's coming to inaugurate a new kingdom. And he is dethroning fake imposter kings in his day. Now, this was God's original intent that mankind would live under the rule of a king. You go all the way back to Genesis, God's the king and God's the creator. And God told Adam and Eve, do not eat and I will protect you and I will keep you and sin will not come into the world. That, 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 that swear allegiance to me as your king, and as your king, I will protect you. I will keep you. But as Sean Carter so eloquently says, signals got crossed and we got flipped, right? Right? Something happened back there in the garden where it did not come out like God had intended it. That Eve put something in someone else on the throne of her heart. And in doing it, in believing the lie of the serpent, she put herself on the throne and says, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. I know what's pleasing to the eyes and I want that. And in doing that, she dethroned the Lord and her husband. Right. Her husband, who was the second to eat. Right. That, that he puts his wife on the throne, that he actually lets her lead him down this path of turning from the Lord. And you know what happened, right? They're kicked out of the garden. Now, here's the thing. Out of the garden, the impulse for a king, it never went away. That that desire to have someone over you who will love you and rule and protect and provide and keep and fight and love you, that desire never, ever, ever, ever went away, even though they were kicked out of the garden. And you see it come back full circle in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's the reason I had us read that really long narrative, because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you know what the people says? Lord, give us a king just like the other nations. And Samuel, he is undone. Like, Lord, what are they doing? And you notice what, what the Lord says to Samuel? He says, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. I have been their king. I delivered them from Egypt. I fed them with manna. I sent them quail. I split the Red Sea that they might walk through it. I went before them and conquered all their enemies. I gave them clothing that never wore out in the wilderness. I did all of this. And now all of a sudden they say they want an earthly king. They are rejecting me. I have been their king. And so the Lord says, OK, I'll, I'll let you give them a king. And the Lord says, hey, but you must warn them. Let me tell you what kind of kings that, that, that will rule over them. And, you know, the, the, the refrain that's repeated over and over and over again in First Samuel chapter eight. Your king that you will appoint will take. He will take your women. He will take your wives. He will take your daughters. He will take your land. He will take your life. He will take your freedom. All he will do is take, 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 take. But if you want a king, I'll give you a king. 
And so you get that irony right there. There's a dethroning where, where, where they are dethroning the Lord and asking for an earthly king. And the Lord says, OK, I'll give you a king. You can have him. But just let me let you know, this is what life is going to be like under the reign of another man. And notice what God calls that. In 1 Samuel 8, he says, you, they are forsaking me and serving other gods. So right there, he makes the connection. When we choose to put something else on the throne and we choose to put something else and say, that's my God, that's my king, what's really happening behind it is idolatry. What we are doing when we do that is ascribing power and glory and honor and provision to a thing or a person or a cause that was never, ever, ever meant to be that. Only God can rule you well. And so God lets him have it. This is why the passage is relevant, right? I don't want you to disconnect Matthew 2 from 1 Samuel. And I don't want you to disconnect Matthew 2 from Eden. See, what's happening is we tend to read the Old Testament like, man, David was a really good king. If I could just get another David. Man, if you realize how the kingdom split after David, he's not the king. He took somebody's wife. And he put a hit out on that man and had that man killed. He took a census of Israel and had 70,000 of Israelites killed. Solomon isn't the king. He's wise, but he had a bunch of women and a bunch of money and a bunch of brains, and he just tore up the kingdom. And so what the Old Testament is saying, you want a king, I'll give you a king. David's not the ultimate king. Solomon's not the ultimate king. Rehoboam is not the ultimate king. Jeroboam is not the ultimate king. And Herod is not your real king. But if you want him, I'll give him to you and I'll show you how they will rule you. And so Herod comes at the end of this long line of failure, of king after king after king after king who cannot truly keep and protect God's people. Now, why is this relevant to us? Because we're no different. We need a king. We need someone stronger than us looking out for us. We need someone wiser than us who will give us wisdom. We need someone stronger than death who will conquer the grave so that death is not the end of us, that we need a king. And here's the thing. We don't just need him. That desire is always there. And if we can't see the kingdom of Christ, then what we will all do is put up and resurrect our own little kings in our hearts. And so you feel it, right? Whenever you go and get life insurance, right? Whenever you go fill that paperwork out, I remember when my daughter was born, that I started to think about somebody other than me and my wife. That I, I, this idea that I need someone to, or something to provide in my absence, that right there, I'm admitting, I'm admitting something right there and just signing this policy. I'm admitting that I need someone to provide when I'm not here. That you admit it every time you go and vote, every single time you go and vote, you're, you're casting a ballot. And what you are saying is, I wish I need someone up higher than me to rule on my behalf. That you do it every time you go to a job, right? You're admitting that I need someone to help me provide, right? So we need this idea of kings. And here's what, 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 what Tim Keller says that is profound. We all have these smaller kings. 
that we sort of resurrect in our hearts, that we might not bow down and greet them with your majesty, but we are all looking to things and people and, and we're, we're deifying them in a way. And he says, look, I, I'm not asking whether or not you have rival kings. I assume that we all do. They are hidden in every one of us. How do you discern the kings that you are bowing to? What do you think about in solitude? What are you most afraid of? How do you spend your money or your time? Look at your uncontrollable emotions. If it is anger, ask what it is that is so important to me in that moment that's making me lose it. You hear what he's saying? We all have little kings right here that we're trusting in, running to, fleeing to, running to. That need never goes away. The second thing Matthew does is he, he gives you a picture. He gives us a picture of contrasting kingdoms. And he is basically saying, which one do you want? Do you want the kingdom that is being inaugurated by the coming Messiah of God? Or are you still going to settle for little kings on the earth? He says, you can't have it both ways. And so what he does is he contrasts these kingdoms. And so you see it with Herod's kingdom. You start to see fear and insecurity. How did Herod respond when word in the streets got back to him that a new king was in town? It says that when he heard this, he was troubled. This smells of insecurity and panic, but it doesn't just affect Herod. Notice what the text says. It says it affected Herod, in verse 3, and all in Jerusalem with him. Now, why would this be the case? Why would the news of a coming king cause Herod to be troubled and all the people in Jerusalem. Herod was an insecure, ruthless man. This is what Josephus, who's a historian in the first century, so we're not talking about, this is a historian, someone who studied history and wrote it and left us things about people and causes. Here is what he said about Herod. Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded that a large group of the most distinguished men come to Jericho and that he would give an order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that the displays of grief that he craved would take place. Think about this. He was so insecure that he, gave a, a, he put a law in order that the day that I die, I want you to line up all the royal men, all the renowned men, and march them right here, and I want them all killed. Because if they don't grieve over me, they will be grieving on that day. You see? You see why the people are, are in trouble? Because you got this crazy dude running, running things, and they know, the people know, that if it's, if it's unsettled with him, then this thing trickles down all throughout the kingdom. That's why they're troubled fear and insecurity, and you know he's crazy because look at what he does in verse 16. When he got tricked, he's not called Herod the king. He's called Herod. When he had been tricked, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. That, that, that's, that's the king you want to submit to power and control. 
He hears about this, and not only is he troubled, he starts issuing commands. It says that he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes. You better tell me, where is this king? Where is he supposed to be born? Tell me, tell me right now, where is it? And they look up Micah 5, and, and, and it shows that he doesn't eat, he's unconcerned that he has to summons them to tell them to tell him where the king that he's afraid of is going to be born. I mean, he is like paranoid. In verse 7, he summoned the wise man to his palace secretly. He wanted to show himself to be tough, but under the cover of night. And there in verse 8, he's still giving commands. Now you go and you go search diligently for the child and then come back to me and tell me where he is. And I may too go and worship. You get this image that this guy is controlling. He's egotistical. He's a maniac. Fear and power and control you see deceit and violence. Look at verse 8, that it appears that his motives are pure. Go tell me where he is that I may go and worship him. And after they did not come back, he murdered all the boys in the region. Two years or under, his intention was never to go and worship. It was the opposite. It was to kill anyone who rivaled the worship and praise he received from his people. And Matthew says, this is your king. This is what you're asking for a king has done. But then he shows us this sweet and beautiful kingdom that's being inaugurated with the coming of the son. And you see it with the son's humility you know, Herod is commanding the Magi to come to his palace in Jerusalem. And did you notice where Jesus is born? In a little house in Bethlehem. I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible does with this. I'll read it. Jerusalem, which is where Herod was, was by far the most important city in Israel. Ask anyone and they can tell you that that's where the palace, that's the palace where the king and all kings should be born. But the, the Magi were in for a surprise. They followed the star out of the important city, along a road, into a little town of Bethlehem, and then they followed the star to the, out to the not-so-nice part of town, into the really not-so-nice part of town, down a little dirt road to a little house, and it wasn't a palace, and there were no guards, and there were no servants, and there were no red carpets or trumpets. Were they at the wrong address? It's beautiful, right? Herod's in a palace in the most important city in that region. And Jesus is in a little house down a dirt road in Bethlehem. That's why he says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. In this seemingly insignificant city, in an insignificant house, there is royalty. You see Jesus' humility. You see it in the Jesus' kingdom will be one of his leading and accommodating himself to us. Whereas Herod is saying, come here, come serve me. Notice how the Magi, how they found the Christ. They were led by a star. Think about that. It's, a, it's, 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 it's radically different. 
that these magi, who we think were astronomers, right, who perhaps worshiped the stars and worshiped creation, here is what you have. You have God Almighty accommodating himself to them. He's accommodating the presence of his reality to a space in a way that they could follow. He comes to those who are worshiping the stars and worshiping the planets and saying, hey, you, you got this a little wrong, and let me show you who made the stars that you're worshiping. And he leads them. He leads them right to where the child is. This isn't God sort of commanding and demanding, though he does and, and, and can at times. This is him leading, saying, come to me. This is him accommodating. Let me accommodate myself to you. And you see it, right? This isn't the only time. Think about Acts when, in Acts when the Holy Spirit is pouring out, poured out. You remember that beautiful, beautiful chapter where the Parthians and the Medes and the Cappadocians are all in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they assume that the, that the, that the apostles are drunk, and the apostles start preaching in a language that they don't even know. And they're like, wait a minute, what in the world is going on? How are you poor fishermen preaching and teaching the gospel to us in our language? It's an accommodation happening right there in Acts. And in other words, the way that God would reach the Cappadocians is by supernaturally giving the apostles this, this gift, this gift to know this language so that the original hearers of the good news they didn't have to go learn that stuff. The Holy Spirit gave them wisdom and unction and ability right there. And God basically says, I will accommodate the message of the gospel to your language. Amen. That's our God, an accommodating, leading, loving king. You also see it in his kingdom. There is protection. And it's not necessarily the absence of danger or hardship, but it is the promise that danger will not ultimately destroy. This paranoid, ruthless, violent king, he can do great harm, and, and it does happen, right? But here is what Jesus is saying. It will not triumph over you. He won't win. And you see it, this, the Magi, they experienced this protection in verse 12 that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they departed from their country and went another way. You see it in verse 13, when the Magi departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right? You see, protection, that, that's a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And then something mysterious happens. That Joseph and Mary and Jesus, that they're put in hiding. And then Herod is killed. And listen to what Josephus says about Herod's sickness. For a fire glowed in him slowly which did not so much appear to the touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. His entrails were so exulcerated and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. An aqueous and transparent fluid settled around his feet and like a matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. 
Nay, further, his privy member was putrefied and produced worms. When he sat upright, he would had difficulty breathing, and there was a stench about him. And he also had convulsions in all the parts of his body. I don't know what dude had, right? <laughs> I mean, like a stench and fluid coming off of his feet and at his belly and his privy member was putrefied. I don't even know what that is, right? <laughs> and it produced worms. I mean, like, here's the thing. You can call that ironic or you can call that God. And notice what the text says. It did not say only Herod died. Look at verse 20. Rise, take the child for his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Josephus tells us that Herod probably died in 4 AD. Which, yeah, 4 AD. And this, these events take place around 2 AD. And Herod goes and kills all the male children two years and under. And God says, you, my friend, you have two years to live. You and every single person wanting to take the life of my son, you're dead. You feel that? that, that this is not coincidence. This is God protecting his people. This is the type of kingdom that he is bringing into existence. How would you feel if you were caught in the middle of these clashings of kingdom? How would you feel if you were alive to see, the, see them putting to shame the most powerful and most wicked man in the known world? How would you feel if you saw angels and stars in verse 10 when they saw the star and ultimately who the star was leading them to? They rejoiced with great joy. Those in Herod's camp were troubled. Those with Christ were jubilant. Those in Herod's camp were afraid. Those in Christ's camp were fearless. We might think that the backdrop to Christmas is all happy smiles and warm time with family. And those are good things. But when you look at the New Testament, the backdrop to the first Christmas was a tyrannical leader who could not be trusted, who abused his people. The backdrop to the first Christmas is insecurity and violence and deceit and under delivering and abuse of power. And it's up and against that backdrop that Jesus says, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of little earthly kings? Aren't you tired of the world and the way it works? Aren't you tired of abuse and greed? Aren't you tired of the survival of the fittest? Aren't you tired of you? 
putting everything on the, the top of your shoulders and saying it's up to you to do everything. Aren't you tired of trusting in yourself? Aren't you tired of evil? Aren't you, don't you long for a king who will lead you? Don't you long for a king who is for the little people and for the have-nots? Don't you long for a king who will pull out all the stops of heaven to protect you and to keep you? Don't you long for a king who says to you, no weapon against you shall prosper. Don't you long for a king who says a thousand may fall at your right hand and ten thousand may fall at your left hand, but no harm will come upon you. Don't you long for a king though cancer may take your body. He actually says cancer serves me. You can go in the grave and you will be with me in paradise. Don't you long for a king who, who, who bullies your bullies? Don't you long for a king who has the hearts of all earthly rulers in his hands and he turns them like water? Don't you long for a king who can protect you, who has angels that he can dispatch to guard you and keep you? Don't you long for a king who has conquered the grave and death and says, fear no more. And there is nothing on earth, nothing, no man or woman or disease can do to you to separate you from my love. Don't you want a king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who can give you favor and jobs and, and, and things that, that the world can't take away? Don't I mean, this is the real life truth of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, you have a we have a great and awesome and gracious and sovereign and, and, and beautiful king, and he is ours right now forever. How do you know that this isn't a facade? How do we know that what Jesus is saying is true and worth following? And that leads us into the last thing, the price your king would pay to prove his love for you. You might read this text and you might say to yourself, man, I hear I hear people always over promising and always under delivering. So what makes Jesus different? You might interrogate this text, right? And you might say, well, you know what, Pastor Hill, I see what you're saying. But what about those little boys who were two and under who were killed? And so while Jesus is out there being protected and he's free, right? He's protected. What about this mother who's burying her son? What about this father who's bearing his firstborn son? So it seems to me that, that if, if I read this the right way, if I read this the right way, you tell me that the real king, this other king gets to put a death warrant out on all the babies two years old. And then what happens to him is he goes over here into Egypt and he stays there and, uh, and Herod breaks out all hell over here. And this king, where is he? Where is he? He's over there in hiding. Right? You can read it that way, but that would be truncating the message of the gospel. You see, you got to realize that what Jesus is, what's happening to him here, it's not him running from the fight. It's him being protected so that he could come back and later win the war. He has a job to do. He's sent into hiding and he'll come back out of hiding and openly do it later. He's only running away from the fight so that he can come back and win the war. I don't know if you've seen Kung Fu Panda, right? 
It is by far my jam. I can watch that. I can watch one, two, and three all day and do it over again, right? But Kung Fu Panda, there's this fat, and he calls himself fat, right? This fat panda, his name is Poe, and there are some prophecies about who would be the, 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 the dragon warrior, right? Who would be the master Kung Fuist? And so there's this ceremony where he's crowned and everyone's looking at him like, no, dude, you, you, you don't have a Kung Fu body. Like, you don't know the moves. You cannot be the Kung Fu master. And there's another guy named Tai Long who's broken out of jail and is about to come back and do war. And so Shifu, he's this other little character. She has to sort of take Poe to the side and take him in and raise him up and raise him up because they're going to do a battle later. That's what's happening in our text. Jesus isn't just running. He's going into hiding because there's a later battle that he has to fight. He's marching to a different beat where we would look at this one way, Jesus is marching to a different beat another way. And you see it, he's marching to the beat of Scripture. Notice verse 6. You see how it's indented on most of your Bibles? The, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Notice verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And so right there, what, what Matthew does is he tells us that basically this is prophecy. That, that that indentation, that right there is telling us that Jesus is marching to a different beat. You see it again in, in, uh, where it says that, that he goes into Egypt. Look at the end of verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You see it again right there in verse 17 when the women are grieving over the loss of their children. Look at what Matthew says. This was for, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. So you get this idea that Jesus is marching to a different beat, the beat of Scripture. And here is a beautiful Scripture from the book of Luke that perfectly tells us what's going to happen. Jesus is born, and he is about to be circumcised. And he, when he's eight days old, he, 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 Mary encounters Simeon, and he was in the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says about Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that you will oppose, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Let that sit in. That when Jesus was crowned, when he was told he's going to make many rise and fall, you might think that, man, he's just going to sail into the sunset. But then he says, no, Mary. A sword's going to pierce your own soul as well. In other words, Mary, just as these other women have buried their two-year-old sons, you're going to watch your own son go to a cross later in life, and it's going to pierce your soul as well. That this protection that Jesus endures right here is only for a season. 
There's a day coming when he appears back on the scene and he's going to stand before another king. And it's his father. And his father's going to pour hell out on him. And his father will take his life on a cross and he will die. And why would he do that? For people like you and me who make a practice of putting little kings on the thrones of our hearts, it's treason against the Lord Almighty. And so your king, the way that he shows his love for you is not by taking and taking and taking and taking. It's by giving and giving and giving up his own life for you. That's the depth of his love. King of glory strung out on a cross to reconcile traitors like you and me to himself forever. How do you respond to such a king? Is there any amount of money? Is there any child, any spouse, any job, any person, any career, any house that has done this type of thing for you? And the answer is no. Your husband is lovely, but not as lovely as Jesus. Your wife is beautiful, but not as beautiful as Jesus. What you have is important, but not as important as Jesus. What do you do with a king like this? You bow down and you worship. You worship. These men, they gave, they worshiped, they gave their frankincense, they offered him gifts, they offered him gold, they offered him myrrh. This is how we respond to the king, worship. There is simply no denying it. Life on this side of eternity is one big and unending war of kingdoms. Jesus had to rescue us from our bondage to our little kingdoms and usher us into his kingdom of loving authority and forgiving grace. He came to destroy our self-oriented kingdoms and to dethrone us as kings over our lives. But this king came to conquer by dying for those over whom he would establish his rule. This is grace. The king died to dethrone kings so that he would be their king forever and ever. That's in your reflection quote by Paul Tripp. Matthew 2 forces us to ask this question. Whose are we? Who will you serve and who will you worship? If we refuse the king, we are no different from Herod in this passage. But if we bow the knee, repent of our sins, believe upon Christ. This new kingdom and this new king is ours. He loves you. He leads you. He will comfort you. He will protect you. And he will keep you now and forever. That's a good king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the kingdom of your son. 
We thank you that he is humble and approachable, that he would not count equality with you as something to be held on to, but that he would humble himself by taking upon flesh. We thank you that he accommodates himself to us by your spirit and through your word and through the things that you do in and through your people, you accommodate yourself to us. You were gentle and lowly at heart and we have found rest for our souls. We thank you that you have secured unprecedented protection for us. We need not fear life nor death, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. May we joyfully and willingly bow the knee this day and forevermore. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.